0: Good morning. We continue our series in the Gospel of John looking at this short passage in chapter 15. Now as we do so we are to remind ourselves that this is part of that wider discourse that's been taking place since chapter 13 and in the context of that wider section of chapters and following the sermons of these last few weeks we should note once again that Jesus returns to the theme of love. Now it may well be that you're sitting there thinking, oh, Ian, not another sermon on love. You've been doing that for the last few weeks. Well, my answer is, well, yes. <laughs> yes, another sermon on love, because this is what Jesus returns to again and again. Someone reminds me of, of that story of, of the, the new pastor that comes to a church. And uh, he goes in and on his first Sunday, he preaches a sermon and it's a cracker. People just love it. They think it's fantastic. He gets lots of kind of positive accolades about this, this wonderful sermon and people go away quite content. Well, the following Sunday, the very next Sunday, he preaches the exact same sermon, word for word, exactly the same. And people think it's a bit odd, but OK, well, you know, but he does the same on the third week. And the fourth week, word for word, exact same sermon. So eventually a delegation of folks approach him and say, well, look, Pastor, um, we really enjoyed the sermon. It is a good one. Don't get me wrong. Love the sermon. Uh, But, um, you know, she did not maybe go into another one. And in turn, someone says, "Uh uh-huh. The moment you put into practice the first sermon, I'll move on to the second one. So whilst we don't have the exact same sermon this week, the return to the theme of love underlines how important it is that we put this into action. After all, uh, as we read this passage set during those brief last moments with his disciples, Jesus returns to the core theme, the thing that matters above all else, love. Again and again following the Last Supper, Jesus hammers home the point, love is the key to everything, knowing the love of God, loving God in return, loving each other, changing the world through the demonstration of this love is to be the foundation of his message. It is the heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian. And so it's no surprise that in the passage we looked at this morning, Jesus begins and ends these six verses with that same commandment, to love one another. Last week I described how the fruit spoken about in this chapter, the fruit that should be evident in each and every one of us, is love. As we abide in Christ, we are saved by his love. We are changed by his love. We are living in his love, which should mean that we, in turn, act in love towards each other. This love in action is underlined in our passage this morning, when we are told to love each other to an extent that we'd be willing to lay down our lives... For our friends, this is my commandment: that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The church that reflects Jesus Christ should be a place where shocking, radical love is modeled to the glory of God and the winning of the lost. It should be. It really should be. The evidence. Of the power of the gospel is this love. As we see here, it is a love that is commanded of us. It's not an optional extra to the life of the Christian. It is the lifeblood of what being a Christian is all about. It is a deliberate response to those in the family of God, regardless of how you might feel towards that individual person at any given moment. Now, it may be that you look at a commandment to love and you think, well, how could, how could love be compelled? Uh, How can you have a commandment to love? And this is particularly the case if you imagine that love is simply a feeling and you can't really help it, who you love and who you don't. Well, uh, firstly, Jesus never commands us to do something that is impossible. He's he's not going to do that. Uh, Secondly, uh, we need to remember that we don't get to define what love is and we certainly don't get to reduce it to the level that is common in the world. In something of a parallel uh, to our passage this morning, in, in First John 3.16, it says, By this we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It is only by seeing this perfect example of love, demonstrated by Jesus Christ in action, that we can know what love is. Uh, The command that we read of here in John 15 is not issued in a vacuum, it's not arbitrary, it's not unrealistic. Uh, Joined with the command to love is a startling example of love. We love in the shadow of the cross. The perfect example of what love is. uh, Which means that the love that we are called to show each other is defined by and modelled by Jesus Christ. And having been the perfect example, we find that we can now receive his love and be changed by his love. So that we are able in turn to truly love each other in what we do. So we are commanded by our Saviour to love our brothers and sisters in the church. And to be frank, it is just as well that it's a commandment uh, without caveat, without excuse. There is no opt-out clause or exception given here. We are commanded, and this is a good thing, because I am fully aware that there are some or maybe even many in the body of Christ that we would not love unless we were commanded. It means that when we do not feel it, the command prods us, it prompts us to take an initial step with God towards something that God will help to cause, take root within us as we obey. By giving us a command to love, Christ removes our hiding places. He strips us of our excuses not to love. He leaves us with no option but to love. Jesus commands his church to love one another because it is fundamental in our relationship with him. He does not want us to even entertain the possibility of claiming to be a disciple without walking in love. Now, this startling call to love this morning is set in the context of being friends. Uh, However, the issues that we have with love, the way that we can dilute it and devalue it and reduce it to a level that is common in the world, is also an issue when it comes to understanding what is meant by friends. And importantly, what Jesus means when he describes us as friends. Verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Now, it may be that you're a little bit uncomfortable with Jesus describing you as a friend. (laughs) Servant, slave, even child can be accommodated a little bit more comfortably. But the idea of a friend can sometimes seem too close, too familiar. Some preachers are so uncomfortable with the idea that they insist that at this point, Jesus, uh, when he's talking about friends, uh, is exclusively talking to the disciples. They're his friends. It's not really for the likes of you and me. But that doesn't really work. Um, the idea that he's only talking to the disciples because... Then, actually, the command to love is only for the disciples. The uh, idea of bearing fruit, of being branches, is also only for the disciples. Uh, But in addition to that, Jesus actually also uses the term to describe other people, um, like Lazarus. And he readily accepts the title friend of sinners. (laughs) There is no getting away from it. As the text tells us here, if we allow the love of God to change us and flow from us so we can do what we are commanded... We are considered to be friends of God. However, it is important to know what Jesus meant when he uses the term friend. Uh, the description of a friend is certainly nowhere near as powerful as it used to be. It's, it's not such a, a statement as it used to be, uh, because uh, after all, you can have uh, hundreds of friends on social media without any of them being particularly invested in your life. We can equate friend with simply being chummy, as it were. And that strikes the wrong note when we're described as a friend of the one who spoke creation into existence. It's too small a thing when compared to what the Bible means when it refers to a friend. To provide the appropriate balance, we need to, once again, uh, return to the Old Testament. Uh, There we discover that the description of a friend refers to, well, two people who are in covenant with each other. Now, a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. In fact, covenant in the Bible comes from the Hebrew word berith uh, and the Greek word diatheke, both of which literally mean an agreement made by cutting. And this is because the most serious agreement was commonly accompanied by the shedding of blood. Now, not all covenants required blood, uh, but each of them was a serious undertaking and some form of ritual went along with it to, to underline how important this was. The seriousness of what was being undertaken when you agreed to be a friend. Now, we see this in the covenant that underpins one of the most famous examples of friendship in the Bible, uh, that between uh, Jonathan and David, as we see in First Samuel 18, 1-4. This might sound a bit strange to us many centuries later, but sometimes a covenant of friendship required swapping clothes. Uh, it was to underline how serious it was to be a friend. Uh, usually the first step was to take off your coat and to hand it to the person that you were making this agreement with. Uh, this transfer of clothing uh, carried with its rather significant symbolism. Uh, in the handing over, you're declaring that you give yourself to the other. You're handing over yourself in a symbolic gesture. As you hand it over, you say, I give myself to you. And then this was usually followed up by the second symbolic action of handing over your belt. Now, back then, the belt wasn't there to hold your trousers up. It was there to hold your weapons. And again, it is deeply symbolic. As you hand it over, you're saying that you have this agreement that you pledge all of your strength, all of your protection, all of your support. When I hand over my belt, I am pledging all of my strength and all of my ability to fight is yours. If anyone should attack well, then your battles are my battles. I will fight with you and defend you from all others. That It's what it means to be a friend. When we read in 1 Samuel 18, we see this kind of covenant being made between Jonathan and David. And that friendship between David, the young giant slaying hero, and Jonathan, the son of King Saul, really means something. They ratified with this covenant a lifelong agreement that expires only when you breathe your last. Such a covenantal friendship would include you and all of your children. And this is exactly what we see uh, later on in the actions of David. You see, Jonathan has a son, Mephibosheth. And when he's just five years old, he loses his grandfather, the king, and his father, the crown prince, on the same day. Now David, who is next uh, to be king, he, he, he is expected to act like all the other so- sovereigns. Uh, he should do the normal thing, which is to sweep in and kill off all the other claimants of the throne because that would secure his own bloodline, his own claim on the throne. And this annihilation was so commonplace that people start on their own accord to kill off the royal family in order to carry favour with David. As such, uh, there is a state of panic in the palace. And the nurse of Mephibosheth, she grabs him and she runs uh, to try and take him to safety. However, in her haste, uh, she accidentally injures the child so badly that he'll never be able to walk. In any event, Mephibosheth is hidden and over time he grows into a young man. Uh, the whole time that he is in hiding, he believes his life to be at risk. His two useless legs act as a reminder of the danger of David, the man who would want him dead. And so for years, he lives not in a palace, uh, not in comfort, but as a fugitive, unaware that his father and David were covenantal friends. In Second Samuel 9, David seeks out any living descendants of Saul, but everyone he approaches goes silent, imagining that he simply wants to harm them. However, these things always get out and eventually someone tips him off as to where Mephibosheth is and David sends in the chariots uh, and, and Mephibosheth, he sees them all coming and as he sees his chariots, all of his fears about David seem to be coming true. He's lifted up and put into a chariot and taken back to David and there Jonathan's son believes quite naturally that his end is nigh. Uh, this vengeful king is going to finally eliminate this threat. The twist in the tale is that Mephibosheth, as he falls on his face before the king, ready to plead for mercy, uh, has no need. David tells him not to be afraid. He tells him that the reason that Mephibosheth is there is to allow David to show him kindness because of the covenantal friendship he has with Jonathan. His life on the run is over. Everything that David has is his. Mephibosheth is invited to live in the palace, to eat at David's table, to have his family lands returned to him, to have safety and security for all generations. This is what it means when we read about David and Jonathan swapping clothes. This This is what we see between these young men, this binding agreement, this covenantal friendship, which has significant ramifications for generations to come because friendship was a powerful thing loaded with responsibility. And that image, that clothes-swapping covenantal friendship exists for us with God. We read frequently about God dressing us in robes of righteousness, robes that are not our own. When we do that, we're not just to see a symbol of the work of God in us, but the covenant between us. The binding agreement that has reached out, though we could be described as lame and destitute and on the run like Mephibosheth. Though we were once considered enemies of God. Love reached out and elevated us to the status of friend, clothed us and feeds us from the table of the king. The significance of God being our friend can also be seen in in some of the other covenant-making customs. Uh, As I mentioned, the very word uh, that we have for covenant refers to something being cut, uh, to blood being shed. Uh, One common practice was for the two parties to to cut the palm of their hand and to, to put their hands together, to symbolically intertwine their life's blood, as it were. Now, this left a scar, a constant reminder, a permanent mark telling us of the responsibilities that had been taken on, that you were a friend. It was a symbol, though, that would also check others for if anyone wished me harm, I now had this mark on my hand. I could just raise my hand and they would see the scar and they would know that they're not just dealing with me, but they would have to also deal with my covenantal friend. They have to take their chances with him as well. Now, this is something that God uh, entered into with us. Now, this is what we read in Isaiah 49 when God explains why he cannot forget his people. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And yet, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have carved you, On the palms of my hands, your walls are continually before me. God says that He wears the scar on His hands and acts as a constant reminder of the covenant. Indeed, He says there's a greater chance of the mother forgetting her infant child than of Him forgetting us. In the context of Isaiah, it is a symbolic guarantee, it is talking about the covenant that has been made. But actually, because of the cross, from where we look, the scar that marked the hand of God became all too literal. The cut of the covenant became all too real as the covenant was carved into the hands of God. When Jesus Christ turns to his disciples and calls them friends, he does so with all of the power, all of the significance of that covenantal friendship in the Old Testament. When he calls his friends, it's, It's like that with David and Jonathan, closer than a brother, the most important person in our lives. It comes with that guarantee that he will be our rescuer, he will be our protector in the face of our enemies. It says that with the scars on his hands, he will never forget us, he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. That is what it means to have Jesus as our friend. It is interesting That having made such a startling declaration towards us, he then returns to the earlier commandment, so love one another. In the context of friendship, in the context of being willing to give everything, including our lives, he comes back to this commandment. And so if I'm honest with myself, it is a command that I find troubling and compelling. And let me explain why. Uh, when working at my previous church, um, part of the role, and one I, I quite enjoyed, was to interact with a group of guys uh, who were really struggling with various forms of substance abuse. It was an important part of the job, and it came with some rather strange consequences. I'd have to plan twice as much time, as it were, set it aside, as simply to walk up Union Street, because I'd need to stop several times to talk to some of the guys – When I was picking up the boys from the local school, some of the mums would give me quite a wide berth because all these rough-looking fellas in the park opposite were busy greeting me. I was uh, one of the group, as it were, but with a marked difference. And this difference uh, comes to mind when I think of one particular occasion worth mentioning here. Uh, there was one guy I, I felt I was really gained through to. Um, you know, we'd had many good, uh, solid conversations about Christ. Uh, I- I'd given him a Bible. He had actually gone and read some of it. He'd come back with questions. They- we were getting somewhere. Uh, however, when push came to shove and I said that he had to accept Jesus Christ as his saviour... He backed off and said, well, actually, he'd he'd just rather to have some money. He just wanted some money from me. He didn't want to accept the greatest gift. He just wanted uh, some some small amount of money, which we both knew would be spent on alcohol. And I was so frustrated Uh, and also heartbroken for this man, this man that Christ died for. And in my frustration, I replied, all right, fine, fine. I can give, if that's all you want, if that's all you actually want, I can give you that. I can give you some paltry sum of money. And I was silent for a moment. I looked at him and I had sadness written all over, the, all over my face when this text in John 15 came to mind. In fact, I'd recently been reading a book that questioned whether we take this text seriously at all. After all, Christ demands that I love my brother to the extent I would die for him. And so mindful of this passage, I looked him in the eye and I said, actually, you know what? It's probably just as well that you just want some money. (laughs) You've actually really let me off the hook, if I'm entirely honest. Because if you had chosen a new life, if you had chosen to be saved by Jesus Christ, you and I, (laughs) we would be brothers. And as your brother, I would have to have laid down my whole life for you. My house, my time, all my money, whatever you needed would have been at your disposal for the rest of your life. But all you want is a few quid. For a drink, that's easy. And uh, the guy was so taken aback, he actually just, just left. But uh, over the next few weeks, he began to take God seriously, much more seriously. He, he turned to God and slowly began to fight the dependency that had ruined his life. Now, as I relate the story, illustrating the love that we are supposed to have, it is compelling and it is troubling. It's compelling because what I said to that man is actually true. Uh, there should be in the church the kind of love that cannot be found in the world, a love uh, typified uh, by the commitment of the biblical idea of friend. And... Yet I find it troubling for the exact same reason. It is troubling because the truth of what I said to that man carries with it the condemnation of the shallow relationships and the lack of love we often find in the church. Even as I said it, I realised that my words were actually born more out of frustration than a willingness to love as I had been commanded. We are called to love. We are called to live up to the idea of being a friend. It is a love seen perfectly in Christ, experienced in the shadow of the cross. Uh, This love is the evidence of God working in us so that when the world looks at it, it looks in amazement. It is to be startling. It is to be larger than anything that we can find anywhere else. It should not simply fade into the background unnoticed, not mentioned. It demands a lot of us because the love of Christ itself is so vast. If we want to see the church alive, Uh, you know, we need to receive this love. If we want to have the joy that is full, we need to have this love. If we want to reach the lost, we need to show this love to each other. And so it only remains for me to say, do you know this love of Jesus? If not, come to him now. Accept his love. And if you do, but you've not been walking in it, Return now to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to change you. Ask him to mould you. Ask him to help you take the first steps in loving each other as friends.